This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. New car sales are setting records, and today on Climate One, we will discuss how electric vehicles are faring in a market fueled by cheap gas. I'm Greg Dalton, and when EVs came into the mainstream market five years ago, I recall EV enthusiasts predicting sales would quickly take off. But just as the cars started getting traction, the floor fell out of the oil market, sending gas prices to levels not seen since the Great Recession. That's hurting EV sales. Last year, sales of cars with a plug that run partly or entirely on electricity fell 5% from the year before, while total car sales hit an all-time high. Over the next hour, we will look into the history and the future of electric cars in the United States and abroad. Scientists say, and many government experts say, that to stabilize the climate that supports the economy, Americans need to get off oil that is driving severe weather. Moving to electric cars that run on sun or wind is one way to do that. And as anyone who has driven an electric car can attest, it's an exciting driving experience. EVs are simply fun to drive, regardless of their virtues that might impress your mother or your neighbor. We're pleased to welcome three EV experts to talk with our live audience here at the Commonwealth Club today. Ten years ago, Sherry Boschert wrote a book titled Plug-In Hybrids, The Cars That Will Recharge America. She's a co-founder of Plug in America, an advocacy group. Eileen Tutt is executive director of the California Electric Transportation Coalition, a group of companies in the electric vehicle industry. She's a former deputy secretary of the California EPA. And Charlie Vogelheim is host of Motor Trend Audio, a weekly podcast. He formerly was vice president of J.D. Power and Associates and editor at Blue Book. Please welcome them to Climate One. Sherry Boschert, why don't you give us a quick history lesson? Uh, in the 1990s, California decided they, sh- uh, regulators decided they should push something called zero emission vehicles, and from that chapter to about 2011, there were what six or seven thousand those cars sold. So, give us that p- quick historic foundation since you lived through that era. Sure, and and the reason this is important, uh, the California Air Resources Board started requiring car makers to make cleaner cars if they wanted to keep doing business in our state. That is one of the reasons we have these cars today. The car companies didn't want to do that. Uh, One of the other reasons is that consumers have been pushing them. Um, But to give you a sense of the back and forth and how long this has taken, uh, in 1990, General Motors displayed an electric vehicle called the Impact. Not a good name. Uh, They later called it the EV1, electric car. Having shown that they could build an electric car, even though it was sort of a concept, the California Air Resources Board then required the top seven automakers to make 2% of their sales in the state be zero emission by 1998, 5% by 2001, and 10% by 2003. We're nowhere near that right now, but those were really great goals, and it freaked out the car companies completely. Um, In 1991, 19 states adopted parts of California's regulations. So now you've got a movement that really is pushing car companies. 
Chrysler was the first to deliver a zero emission vehicle in 1993, but the big three, GM, Ford, and Chrysler, sued New York and Massachusetts to fight the zero emission vehicle mandate. Lawsuits went on, went back and forth. Um, the Western States Petroleum Association uh, started hiring fake people to go complain about the zero emission uh, vehicle mandate. Uh, the car companies fought back. Uh, they kept suing. Um, in the early 2000s, the Bush administration uh, you know, basically backed the car companies. And the California Air Resources Board decided that they had to water down the regulations, that they couldn't keep up the fight or they, there was a potential to lose. And so in 2003, they did. Um, in 2001, the Air Resources Board cut the zero-emission vehicle mandate uh, to 2% of sales, and they kept scaling it back and scaling it back. There was a movie made about this, which people can watch, the, sort of, the electric car kind of got pushed and then killed, right? Uh, and then we get to 2011, where kind of there's a, there's a new generation of electric cars that comes onto the market, right? Okay. Yeah, and if you so, haven't seen the movie, Who Killed the Electric Car? It tells the whole story, and, and it's, even if you're not a car person, it, it um, frames it as a murder mystery. Who killed the electric car? Was it the Air Resources Board backing down? Was it the car companies? Was it the oil companies? Did consumers not want them? Or did hydrogen, hydrogen fuel cell cars distract everyone? So it's a really entertaining movie and was followed by another movie called Revenge of the Electric Car when the electric cars came back. A lot of that in my book gives you a lot of background uh, that explains why we're where we're at today. You know, we have the cars, but not as many as we should and we need to keep pushing, and government regulators need to keep pushing. An interesting thing there, you said that we're b- below even where people uh, started 25 years ago, and the, where the market uh, a share of electric cars today is below where regulators wanted to be 15 years ago. Uh, and sales have uh, been less than some people were predicting even five years ago. I want to show a clip of uh, a former regular, Anthony Eggert, was here five years ago when he was at the California Energy Commission, and this was a scenario. This was not a projection, but this is what s- some people were thinking about where we would be uh, you know, now or so in, in, or in 2020 for electric cars. So let's listen to Anthony Eggert from the California Energy Commission five years ago. Um, we, we looked at, uh, I would say, an optimistic scenario of potentially a million vehicles here in the state by 2020. Um, and I think that is, that is plausible, but it's very aggressive. Million vehicles by 2020. Eileen Tut, where are we today in California? We have about 160 thousand vehicles and so we have four more years to do 840,000 vehicles in and that took us almost five years to get to that 160 so I think I believe we can make it to a million but I think the challenge right now is all about what you said in the opening comments Greg the gas prices the fact that you can get gas at two dollars a gallon is really really hurting this market and and I don't see that changing anytime soon, but I guess I'm still hopeful that, uh, that we'll get close to a million. I think it's great to have that good target. And I, I want to point out that I think what we're doing in California, the zero emission vehicle requirement from the Air Resources Board is very important, but we also have incentive programs. So can I just ask, ask who in this audience here in this studio owns or, dry, or leases an electric car? Okay, so about half. half Yeah, about half of you. For those of you that don't, (laughs) 
the, there are or those out in the out listening on online or wherever you're listening. Um, the state offers incentives. The federal government offers very generous incentives. There's something called the low carbon fuel standard, where your utility will give you money on your utility bill if you tell them you have an electric vehicle and you plug it in at home. So your electricity costs are reduced. There are um, HOV lane. So if you're if you're if you're in a congested area and you want to get into a, a shared you know, lane where usually you'd have to have two or more people in the car, you can get a sticker if you own an electric car in California. So in this state, the, the mandate or the requirement on automakers is one component. But I think part of the reason we're succeeding this time where we didn't succeed last time is because the state government in all, you know, at the Public Utilities Commission, at the California Energy Commission, at the Air Resources Board, and now the federal federal government, everybody's pulling together to try to encourage consumers to make, you know, the greenest choice out there, which is a plug-in electric vehicle. Can, can I add one thing, too, which is sure, education? Boston. Yes. Uh, consumers important. still don't understand plug-in cars and how much they save. I mean, when I wrote my book, gas averaged $2.50 a gallon. And to, at that price, driving a mile costs you 13 cents. On the average rate of electricity, it costs two to three to four cents. So you're saving so much more. I have an acquaintance who commutes from Pacifica to San Francisco every day, and her car was dying. She leased a Nissan Leaf for less than the cost of what she was spending on gasoline. She basically got a free car. So if more people knew that and understood that, it would look more appealing. Charlie Vogelheim, you are uh, one of the few people in the country that's probably driven all of these cars. Uh, you joke that you haven't owned a car because you drive a different car every week, it seems. So tell us about the state of the market. Uh, you've driven, there's what, 22 or 25 cars on the market now with a plug. Tell us about the, the There range are now, and, and, and yeah. certainly, again, it, it, it's both the all-electric and then the plug-in electric, as you're saying, which are you know, versions of a hybrid vehicle. Um, it, again, it, it is a great driving experience. We were talking about one of the cars that Eileen owns, which is the uh, Cinquecento, the Fiat 500, uh, all-electric. It's a great car in this town. You get all of the torque right up front. Owning an electric car um, can be trouble-free to the extent of a lot of the mechanical issues you have with engines, internal combustion, aren't there in an all-electric car. So, you know, a lot of the issues I go back to when you talk about, again, desirability is just a cost. I mean, unfortunately, we're, we're enveloped in this great technological boom, particularly in this part of the country, just north of Silicon Valley. And Moore's Law dictated, you know, a doubling of, of, uh, of storage and at half the cost going over. And I think a lot of the promise with electric cars is that we all believe, and there, I still do, and, and many of the engineers, that there's going to be a breakthrough. There's going to be that opportunity. But in the end, uh, for a lot of people, the fact that in an affordable electric car will go at or under 100 miles on a charge, it offers a little bit of range anxiety still. And that's when, of course, you can have the plug-in electrics and, and the, with the hybrid backup and things like that. But um, to the extent that it fits into your lifestyle, you know, I can't not recommend. I can talk about individual models, and some are a little bit more spirited drive, and some are a little bit more benign. There's also just the fact that it's hybrid, and some of the luxury models isn't really about as much fuel saving as, as augmenting the power a little bit, just to give you that lower end torque, to give you a sense that it's a little bit more powerful engine. Again, just changing your ride quality in that regard. But uh, again, I find it exciting. I find the fact that, that you can drive for an 
you know, depending on your habits and, and not have to go into a gas station, not have to have some of the, the aspects of, of repair and, and ongoing uh, issues. You know, you don't really ever have an engine light go on <laughs> because there isn't the engine. Um, but uh, those aspects of it are, are encouraging. Uh, and I, but again, the frustration around it, and I hope that we get to this in the discussion, is just, again, the the storage of that power. I mean, we're all trying to get to point A to point B, and we're storing the power in this case, in the form of electricity, in this case, in the form of a battery. Unfortunately, that is hard to compete against. The, the, the greatest stored power that we know or that we can derive is, is a gallon of diesel fuel. Um, again, that's not necessarily something to aspire to, uh, but to the extent that until we can get the battery capabilities up a little bit more and or the cost a little bit lower, that's what we have to you know, bang up against. Eileen Tut, you have some teenage drivers in your house. How do that teenagers are often anxious uh, about life and lots of things? Uh, how do they deal with a- range anxiety? Because when you first go electric, you're kind of like, oh, I'm not so sure. Am I going to run out of gas? So how did your family deal with range anxiety? Well, for anybody who has a teenager out there, this is not going to shock you. They loved taking those cars right up to the edge. And my daughter and son would bring home that car, and it would have one mile. In fact, (laughs) one time, my my son pulled up, and the car shut down right as he was at zero. So that is so exciting to a teenager. (laughs) It's like one more risk that they can take, and your mom isn't going to kill you for it. So, yeah, there was range anxiety was simply a non-issue for my teenagers. I will also say that they've never lived in a household that didn't have an electric car. That's, that's all they really know. is, And they, ha- they don't like gasoline cars because, as Charlie was saying, there's just so many benefits to driving an electric car that you don't think about. And if you're a kid, you really notice the difference. Like, they loved the quiet. My daughter gets very car sick. She has some real issues with car sickness. She doesn't get car sick in an electric car, and she's certain it's because the gasoline is killing her, right? So it's it, the benefit. They don't have a transmission. If you haven't driven an all-electric car, you may not know this. There's no transmission. So there's the maintenance on these cars is pretty much zero, which is another good thing if you have a teenager, by the way. So I would say the other thing that my um, son really loved, particularly, is we had the Mini E for a while. And if any of you have driven that, that BMW vehicle, they have a regenerative braking system. You take your foot off the gas, and it slows down so fast. The re- regenerative braking kicks in. It slows down so fast, it's like putting your foot on the brake. So my son would race up to a stoplight, and people would see this. You could tell he's a kid driver. They'd get freaked out, and then he'd pull his foot off, and the thing would slow down so fast, but there'd be no brake lights. So he also really enjoyed freaking out <laughs> other drivers. That's great people behind him. Yeah, so there right. were many benefits to a teenager with these electric cars. And, and if anyone doesn't understand regenerative braking, basically yeah. they take the, the yeah. braking, instead of it being lost as heat, they use that to create electricity to put back into the batteries. Charlie Vogelheim, how are millennials shaping the car market? That's obviously a lot of consumers are looking at them. They're shared, changed views of uh, owning cars and getting driver's licenses, et cetera. Are they going to be the real force that changes this? 
Well, I, I think so, and to the extent that there's some joy in it. I, got, I have to tell you that, you know, if we, if we don't call it a car, but we call it personal mobility, and, you know, it, it's different now. When, you know, when we turned 16, that was our social media. That was our way to escape. That was our way to get out and to see our friends. We had the one phone line coming into the house, and your sister was on it the whole time anyway, <laughs> so you had to go somewhere to see your friends. Unfortunately, teenagers now, in their defense, they get their license, particularly here in the state of California, and for safety reasons, they can't do a whole lot. They can't drive at night. They can't drive with their friends. They have to wait a year or more and prove that they are... And and again, this is because most of the accidents happened when they were first getting behind the wheel. So they're they're looking to other ways to get around, whether it's a shared ride with a Lyft or Uber or something like that, or even, uh, you know, some of the other alternatives to driving. And I would say that any trepidation that perhaps people our age have about it, the millennials don't have. They're willing to try. It's like, bring it on. If if it works for me, I'm, I'm, I'm all in. Charlie Vogelheim is host of Motor Trend Audio Weekly Podcast. We're talking about electric cars at Climate One. Uh, I'd like to turn to autonomous cars, another thing on the horizon. Uh, Eileen, uh, some people are looking at uh, autonomous cars as a boost for electric cars because in some ways, some people have said there's challenges for autonomous cars being internal combustion engine. Um, How's that going to change? Is that going to put some wind in the sails for electric cars when Google and Apple start making cars? Because we probably think they're not going to be making gasoline cars, or we're not sure? Well, I mean, I guess that's really interesting, and I'm going to ask everyone who's listening today to write to Google, because as far as I can tell right now, their autonomous cars, well, they all are using gasoline. Uh, So they have not, and they haven't really, and we've wanted them, and they're very green. They have this, they want to be seen as green, which may be why a lot of people think those cars are electric. But we need them to we need them to use electricity. And in all honesty, I hope that the regulators have some requirement on autonomous cars because the, the autonomous cars. And I think, Charlie, you probably would agree, but I, I'm I'm not as well educated about cars as you are. But my sense is that um, autonomous cars and electric vehicles go hand in hand. So if we required uh, autonomous cars to be also electric cars, then I think we have a much better chance of really breaking into the market. I hope all autonomous Although cars un- are Although unlikely that Sacramento or the federal government is going to dictate to yeah. car companies what kind of fuel they... That would also run against the libertarian streak in Silicon Valley. I don't see that happening. Well, Trey they Washer. may not dictate the fuel. I mean, they studiously tried not to do that, which is why we have this fiction of hydrogen fuel cell vehicles being viable. Um, but they are willing to regulate emissions, and they are willing to regulate you know, things that contribute to global warming. So the idea of all these cars being gas, they're going to have to be more and more and more efficient gas or hybrids or then plug-in hybrids or all electric. You might as well make them all electric from the start. So the government regulators are willing to regulate emissions. They need to do a faster and tighter job. I mean, let's face it, we're on a tight timeline here with, with global warming. We've got to ratchet it up, whether it's regulations or whether it's consumers demanding. And I'm hoping the young people are more willing to demand cleaner cars. Charlie Vogelheim, autonomous cars, that's got to be pretty exciting for someone in the, uh, in the auto uh, media uh, industry as you are. Um, how are they going to shake up the industry and are they going to result in more electrics? 
Yeah, it's, it's hard to say. Again, uh, all of the automakers are working on, on a version. Every of the major automakers has a lab down in Silicon Valley. The, the major suppliers, Delphi, uh, have an, uh, you know, they have an autonomous car. It's, if you look at the, uh, the Google cars, for the most part, their early fleets are modified Lexus vehicles, so they're internal combustion engines. They may or may not be hybrid, but for the most part, uh, Mercedes has all of, you know, the, it, it is an internal combustion engine for now. So it, it's a little bit of a different track. It is technology, but it is all around, you know, the concepts of whether it's all the decisions are happening fully autonomously with the individual vehicle, and then the whole V to X or V to V to vehicle is V to V, V to infrastructure is V to I, and V to everything is V to X. Um, and how much connected that needs to be. There's a lot of issues about latency in, in terms of computations and, and the, the fact that our cell system is already overloaded right now, even if we go for L, LDT everywhere. Um, so if you start thinking about what type of vehicle information is going to be uploaded, downloaded, it's, it's uh, terabytes per car, and it, the uh, system just won't take all of that right away. So... Hey, I'm a big supporter of autonomous cars because I think everybody that doesn't want to be driving a car shouldn't have to, and they can stay out of the left-hand lane, and we'll all be happy, and everybody will get to where they want to go, and nobody's in a bad mood when they get there. The other thing about the battery, and I really would love to talk more about hydrogen, but it doesn't fill as quickly. We all know that how quickly we can fill a tank with a liquid. There's things about liquids that just they move quickly and they, they come in and they come out and they can take on uh, any number of shapes. Unfortunately, electricity takes a little bit of time. If you get into autonomous cars like autonomous Uber cars, you think of the miles that they're going to put on those unless you could do a battery swap. You just don't have time to recharge these if they're going to be utilized throughout the day. And that's Obviously, consideration, and it's been demonstrated in some areas like with the Tesla and battery swaps, and that, again, might be a very viable solution, but that's a, another consideration in time, terms of uh, time to refuel. Charlie Vogelheim, what do you see in the product pub pipeline? What exciting cars are we going to see on the road the next three to five years that are either electric or some kind of hybrid? Uh, are we going to see some cool new stuff coming our way? Well, there's some very cool stuff, but I've got to say I'm very excited about the Bolt coming out. And, you know, we talk about the Leaf. I was excited when the Leaf came out for the simple fact that it is a mass-marketed all-electric car. And everybody's making noise. Is it going to work? Is it going to be great? We can't have electric range anxiety. Until they did it, until people had them and were driving them in numbers, then we got to find out what that was all about. AAA in Southern California has a truck specifically for electric cars to catch in and all that are stranded because of range anxiety. They've never used it. The early adopters seem to understand range and seem to, to be able to work around that. I'm excited about the Bolt because it is designed from the bottom up. Uh, there's an interesting relationship General Motors has now. They've invested in Lyft. The shape and size of that car lends it towards the shared car economy. So now it enters with some type of volume, with some type of utilization. It continues the conversation and the realities of using these electric cars. So I'm excited about that as, as the next step. We should say that that's a $35,000 car, 200-mile range, similar to the Tesla Model 3. should also mention that General Motors is the sponsor of the Climate One podcast. Uh, Charlie Vogelheim, what else do you see on the, on the horizon other than, than the Bolt? Uh, what other, you know, are we going to see more uh, luxury car makers make, being serious about plug-in hybrids? Because uh, it has been, Tesla really seems to be, Porsche, Audi, all the high-end cars have to be there to match Tesla. Yeah, so, so the Tesla and the Tesla S and the Tesla S in ludicrous mode is, <laughs> if you can say it, it is ludicrous. I mean, it's a sports car. It's a fabulous sports car. It's got a lot of technology. 
but it's a fast. I mean, it's, it's a, a roller coaster, not on rails. Um, and so that being said, yes, the other manufacturers are looking at going, we can possibly do this. Obviously, we make the car portion. It's about the drivetrain at this point. Um, you got to give, uh, you know, Tesla did a remarkable job from the ground up, both in, in, in how that car drives and even the, the Tesla X, um, which, again, with the batteries down in a platform situation, offers a low center of gravity and gives you some great driving dynamics. Uh, when you have the other cars that, that are going to have to come in, um, let, what, what I'm very curious about seeing in the car market, and a little bit of a distraction um, from what you asked me, I'm sorry, Greg, but when the X does come out in numbers, when it does, and it hasn't really yet, and when the, the new one, uh, the 3, comes out, what that's going to do to S sales and what that's going to do to the used car market on S's. I'm very interested in finding out what that is because that'll be the true test to the early adapters and how many people really wanted and did they all get one. And that's the reason I'm, I'm saying that is because that's what Porsche's concerned is right now. Uh, Porsche's looking at it uh, with what and, and how big is really this market. Yes, we can do it, but there's a lot of R&D that goes into a lot of costs and how many people are really out there and, and willing to do it. You know, the, the Chevy Suburban, quite the opposite than everything we're talking about. One of the most popular vehicles in its class, and it took forever. And when, uh, when we finally get the Tesla to roll out a couple new models, I think it'll be a great indicator to size and demand in this marketplace. Sherry Boschert, you write in your book about a Chevy Suburban that got converted to electric and had fantastic actual mileage. Professor Andrew Frank at uh, UC Davis, which is Eileen's from Davis, um, he's been converting trucks and SUVs to plug-in hybrids for decades now and was one of the first to show that it could be done. He converted a huge uh, Suburban, got 60 miles per gallon, um, a decent electric range. Of course, it cost a lot of money. It was a one-off. It was a student program. But the technology is possible is what he showed. Um, I think what we have now is many more options than what we had 10 years ago, uh, which is great. I'm, I am pleasantly surprised that consumers have embraced all electric, um, even more than plug-in hybrids, which is, I thought it would be the opposite when I wrote my book, Plug-in Hybrids. But they really have raced all electric. When you experience electric drive, you want more of it. It's way more fun. It's quiet. It's not stinky. You don't have to go to a gas station. And so people embrace that instead of the plug-in hybrids. Jerry Boschert is a co-founder of Plug-in America. We're talking about electric cars at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Our other guests are Eileen Tut and Charlie Vogelheim. We're going to go to our... Uh, lightning round right now and ask our uh, mm -hmm. panelists, our guests, a uh, brief yes or no question, starting with Eileen Tut. Uh, providing charging stations for electric cars is a lousy standalone business, yes or no? No. Uh, governments and other institutions, Eileen, governments and other institutions should provide it as a utility or amenity? Absolutely. Thank uh, you the, to the Public Utilities Commission in California, by the way. <laughs> Sherry Bosher, traditional car dealers want to strangle Tesla in its crib because it challenges their business model, yes or no? In their dreams, yeah. <laughs> Charlie Vogelheim, the Toyota Prius is often called a halo car, and like many things with a halo, it is not much fun. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sherry Boschert, some EV advocates are so rabid they sometimes foam at the mouth. I, I haven't seen it, nope. <laughs> okay. Uh, Eileen touched. Arnold Schwarzenegger's hydrogen highway was a bunch of hype that never went anywhere. 
I worked for the man. I'm not answering that question. <laughs> Sorry, Greg. <laughs> could walk through the door. Um, last one, Charlie Vogelheim. Romance in an electric car is more exhilarating. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. That ends our lightning round. How do they do? I think they did pretty well. And now, here's a Climate One Minute. With oil prices continuing to drop, drivers are getting more bang for their buck at the pump, no matter what they drive. And without consumer demand to drive them, what motivates automakers to invest in EV technology? When Jason Bordoff of the Center on Global Energy Policy visited Climate One last year, Greg Dalton asked him if cheap gasoline means we'll see the return of the Hummer to our roads. Uh, well, probably not the Hummer, but um, car makers respond to consumer demand. So uh, if consumers decide that, you know, cheaper gasoline uh, is here to stay because we've forgotten that it goes up and down a lot and it's probably going to go up and down again, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll respond to that. Mm-hmm. From an, an uh, oil demand and emission standpoint, lower prices are not a good thing. So people respond to demand and on the margin, you're going to consume a little bit more. You're going to drive a little bit more. Maybe you make a different choice about what kind of car you'd buy. That's why I think um, policy is so important. And I think what prevents us from Returning to the Hummer uh, is the fact that we have aggressive fuel economy standards, and hopefully uh, we stick to them um, in the U.S. And then, obviously, you know, other countries are some, not all, moving forward with their own efforts to reduce oil demand. Through, but policy is going to be the key driver. That's Jason Bordoff, director of Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy. Now back to our live discussion on today's EV market at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, Sherry Boschert, let's talk about advertising. Some people say that Detroit doesn't advertise electric cars. They don't sell them because they don't advertise them. And I watched a lot of TV over Christmas holidays, saw more car commercials than I can ever remember, and no electrics in those beautiful lineups of red cars with ribbons on them. Well, and this has been a criticism since the 90s, since they first started producing them. You didn't see the commercials with the sexy babe draped over the car. You know, you didn't see the electric car powering up the mountain and into the wilderness like you do in common car commercials. Um, But it's a a two-pronged thing. I mean, they don't advertise them the same. And and once you're an an electric vehicle fan, you do start noticing there are some commercials out there. There's Nissan commercials, there's Volt commercials, and you notice them in the way that the general public doesn't. But they're few and far between. That's one prong. The other prong is that car dealers have this inherent um, conflict. And if you ever try and go in and talk to a car dealer, I want to see your plug-in car, nine times out of ten, they'll try and misdirect you and steer you away. Here's this gas model. Wouldn't you rather buy this? Um, How do they sell clean cars and then say, oh, and by the way, I have these dirtier, ultimately more expensive and noisy you know, cars over here. And the reason they do that is they make money off sales and parts and oil change and everything that's else. Right. Right? It's car, after sales service. Car dealers don't make most of their money from sales. It's the other stuff. And you don't have to do that other stuff with electric cars. Okay. Uh, another aspect of that, Charlie Vogelheim, is the media, the sort of uh, the journalism media. Uh, Consumer Reports recently announced the best cars of 2016. There was no mention of any EVs. Motor Trend, Car and Driver, Road and Track often sell performance, power. And so uh, if you could self-critique the, the industry in terms of its promotion of, of performance rather than uh, you know, 
EVs, although EVs are really fun to drive. Yeah, yeah. So let me first begin with uh, my uh, defense of the Toyota Prius um, before I get set on fire. Um, the, the, when it, the, the last edition was uh, introduced at the New York Auto Show, it was my car of the show, and partly because of what it represented, but partly because of the body style. I'm looking at a vehicle that all of a sudden suits my needs in, in, in a footprint. I can fit my bike in it. I can, it doesn't take up a lot of room on the road. And, and just beyond what the, the drivetrain was, I mean, that was bonus back, back in my day. Current issue of Motor Trend has a Comparo with the new, um, I think it's the Volt versus the, uh, the uh, Toyota Prius, toe-to-toe. And I will just say one quick thing about Motor Trend has a real MPG website where they are testing all vehicles, hybrid and otherwise, against what the EPA tests show versus what the real road is. So, you know, Motor Trend, as far as the buff books goes, is a little bit geekier, a little bit more numbers-driven, so it's all about the Comparos. Um, the overall attitude is one of, you know what, uh, the, the, the true car aficionados uh, love the power, love the sound, love the noise. Unfortunately, any of, of the guys that, that I've talked to about the E, um, the uh, F1 um, races, uh, it missed the visceral sound of the of the the high-revving engines racing past them. That's part of the, the racing scene to them. Um, and, and that's a part of it. And it's an interesting thing to, to think about. How do you replace that? Can you put speakers up and it can make whatever sound you want? It could sound like a Ferrari. It could sound like galloping horses. It could sound like, I don't know. Um, but but it's, it's part of, the, of, of, of that racing. But is it part of what we were used to growing up? Because there was always noise associated with it, and, and maybe there isn't in an all-electric family. So going back to the original question on, on media's view towards that, I'll say that, that we have an open mind, that we're, we're willing to see it as technology, and uh, I already showed Greg Victor's earlier some photos of the, the McLaren, uh, some of the uh, F1 race cars that, that are actively using hybrid because it does provide power, it provides additional power at certain times, um, and it is a technology that, that makes sense over, you know, over development, and, and anything that, that, that leads to development, leads to new technology, we're all for. Right. Sherry Bosher, it sounds like he just said that EVs are feminine. Oh, wait a second. No? Oh, well, I didn't hear <laughs> that. Place, uh, you know, um, very romantic. But, but I, one quick thought. Sure. Since Charlie mentioned a website where you can compare performance of vehicles, I want to put in a plug for Sierra Club, which has a website where you can compare the cleanness of vehicles, even plug-in vehicles, because a lot of people have this misconception, you know, electricity, you know, it's dirtier than gasoline. Well, so electricity made from coal is dirty. Electricity made from natural gas is cleaner. Electricity made from solar is clean. And so you can go to the Sierra Club website, tell it where you live, you know, what kind of, and compare plug-in hybrids, uh, all electric, gas, and see which is the cleanest car because this is climate one. That's what really counts. But let me just say <laughs> something here. Okay. Can I just say something? Because even electricity made from coal is cleaner than gasoline, certainly with the current technology and combustion engine vehicles. So it's much better to go with solar or renewable energy. And California's got a very, very clean grid. But there's really, and that's what you'll learn on the Sierra Club and from the um, Union of Concerned Scientists, that even if you generate your electricity from coal, given the regulations on coal today, it's going to be cleaner than, than Will using be, gasoline. but there, I think there's some debate whether a coal, a car that runs on electricity provided by coal today is cleaner than gasoline. I think there, there's be some real debate about that. In fact, I remember The Economist doing a story saying that was not the case. EVs in China are dirty. Well, but in wanna, China, yes. It, uh, <laughs> or here. If it's and, there are pockets. I would say there are pockets of the United States right by 
coal plants where driving all electric can, is dirtier than a hybrid. It's not dirtier than an average gas car, but can be dirtier than a hybrid. And in those few pockets, a plug-in hybrid is your best option. Talking about electric cars at Climate One, I want to come back to what Charlie Vogelheim said, because he, he said that there's this perception that sound and, and horsepower is masculine and EVs are not. Eileen Tudd, is that, are, are EVs feminine? Absolutely. <laughs> and by the way... <laughs> Women make most car buying decisions. That's what the data tells me. So I'm obviously biased. I think the new Chevy Volt, by the way, is a much prettier car. And part of the reason is that it's it's a much more feminine looking. It's a much prettier car. The old Chevy Volt, the one that I own, unfortunately, is kind of muscle car. I I actually, the only thing I don't like about my Chevy Volt is it looks too muscle car to me. I would have much, I like the new design better. So I don't think that's a negative thing. I think that's a very positive thing. They're quieter, they're cleaner, they're neater, they're smarter. Yes, they're more feminine. And I think different, different, models, different <laughs> models are more, more masculine or more feminine. And the bottom line is we need options. Consumers want different kinds of cars. My needs for a car are different than Eileen's, are different than Charlie's. So we need different options. And we haven't had many until recently. We need a lot more. Uh, Sherry Boschert, Tesla has done an amazing thing. Five years ago, 10 years ago, uh, the people who liked EVs might have been engineers, might have been hippies or environmentalists, and now EVs are seen as the status symbol of Silicon Valley. The, the image has changed dramatically, which has made them much more desirable by much of America. Yeah. Is that, is that accurate? Well, I think so. I mean, I'm, I'm not that into cars myself uh, the way that um, Charlie though, and a lot of people are. No, you wrote a book about them. Yeah. I did, ironically, um, because I'm an environmentalist. I'm into cleaner cars. What Tesla did was just build the best car, period. I mean, it has been rated the best car over and over again by car and driver and blah, 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 and consumer reports. So they built the best car. It also happens to be the cleanest car. And so it became, and it's a luxury car, so it became the most statusy, symbol-y car you could imagine. Everyone wanted it. Um, that's a game changer. Can they translate that into an affordable mass market car? We'll find out with the Model 3. I think so, and I think that'll be a huge game changer that will accelerate adoption and accelerate to get us to that million cars by 2020. And so will Chevrolet with the, the Bolt, that middle class, because right now it's a luxury. You know, EVs, uh, Eileen Tut, are still seen as a premium product that a lot of people can't afford. Well, and, and I think that's, that's where the misinformation is out there. EVs, even today, are affordable for everyone. You can get the Fiat 500e, the Chevy Volt, the Nissan Leaf. All these cars are, especially with the rebates that California offers and the federal government offers, you can get them. You can lease them for under 200 a month, which is lower. In fact, in many cases, under $100 a month. You, can put, you put down $2,500, which then the government, federal, state government gives the money back to you. So I think there are affordable now. And I think there is this one thing I want to say that was beautifully done the first time the zero, the electric vehicles came out and were crushed and killed. And every, you know, the automakers didn't like them. The oil companies hated them was there was a grassroots campaign in, um, what are low-income and minority communities, what we now refer to, which I don't like, by the way, but the state refers to these communities as disadvantaged communities. But in these low-income communities, there was this effort to get get these folks all, um, you know, 
upset about electric vehicles, suggesting that they were just rich toys that were going to be subsidized by the government, that were going to be required by the government and drive cars, car prices up for all the poor people. And we had, I remember because I was working at the Air Resources Board at the time, we had these large group of environmental justice groups come in and testify at hearings against the zero emission vehicle mandate because they felt like it was um, for rich people. And they were, those people were, they, there were vans that went and picked them up and those vans were hired by the industries that wanted this mandate dead. And so I think this idea that the car is only for rich people is really not true. And I, I would say, say this to, I say this all the time, especially to policymakers in, in the legislature, um, poor people in general don't buy new cars. So it's not about electric cars. What we need to do is get as many new cars out there as fast as possible so they move into the used car market, which is where lower-income people shop for their cars. And that it doesn't mean that electric vehicles are too expensive for people who are, who, who are low-income. It means that people who are low-income can't buy new cars, period. So I think that's the challenge for us. And when that argument comes up, it really is, it's a red herring, and it's about trying trying to undermine the state's efforts to get these vehicles out there and successful. Eileen Tutt is executive director of the California Electric Transportation Coalition. We're talking about electric cars at Climate One. Uh, Eileen Tutt, you mentioned tension between the oil industry and the auto industry. And I want to roll a clip of, we had uh, an executive from General Motors here recently uh, on that topic, and I want to get you to respond to what he said. This is uh, Shad Balch from General Motors. There's a history of romance collusion between the oil industry and the auto industry are you uh, you guys on the skids uh, trust me <laughs> i mean they're on the rocks you know? the, the oil industry didn't do us any favors back in when we went through bankruptcy and they were making billions in record profits so by no means i mean um they don't scratch our back and we're not scratching theirs at all we want to build cars and trucks that run on anything but petroleum so Eileen Tut, is, is that true? Is that what you see in, in uh, Sacramento? Is there yeah. an alliance between oil and the auto? What I see is exactly what Shad just said. No, there is anything but an alliance. The auto companies really do not like the fact that their product is is mainly runs on one uh, fuel. They would love to see a more diverse fuel market for a lot of reasons because they feel, you know, they, they really don't like that. So that's why you see natural gas vehicles. That's why you see electric vehicles now. And I, I would say that is probably the best thing we have going for us is that the automakers would love to build a car that doesn't rely on on oil. And I want to I answer an earlier question, if it's okay, about marketing, because I feel like the auto companies often get hit with this, you're not marketing your cars well enough. And they do market these cars, but what they're trying to do is be smarter about it, because they, you know, believe it or not, they make a lot of cars that don't run on electricity, and they want to sell all of them. So they um, market the electric vehicle in different ways, because there's a different market. The market's very segmented. They market um, through social media, I, I saw a Super Bowl ad, by the way, and I think the reason they put an ad um, during Super Bowl time is because you get all these people that normally don't watch sports watching sports. One thing that I, uh, that I notice is that I feel like they are marketing and they're trying to market them smart, but it's also really hard to tell your marketing people that they've got to market a car that they know full well every car they sell they're losing money on. They, they say, well, why don't we market the cars that we're making money on instead of the cars that we're losing money on? And I think that is a place where it would be really 
important for public funding and government to step in because we, you know, not we, but government wants these cars in the market and wants the market to grow probably a little bit more than the, the car industry because the car industry, you know, is, is not sure that people are going to really like them yet or not. So why doesn't government support a, a marketing campaign? And I think that's going to happen here in California, and I'm really excited about it. We're talking about electric vehicles at Climate One with Eileen Tutt from the California Electric Transportation Coalition, uh, Sherry Boschert from Plug in America, and Charlie Vogelheim from Motor Trend Podcast. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's go to our first question. Welcome. Hi, Adam Stern from Actera. There was some discussion earlier about um, helping low-income people be able to acquire EVs, and I think someone said the key thing is to getting more of these cars in the market and then waiting so that there's a used car market. Isn't there more that could be done, and is California considering other steps that would enable people to have them sooner? Eileen Tutt? Yes, absolutely. Um, so the, the, right now, the state of California has a number of programs that are specifically designed to get these vehicles into the hands of low-income uh, people living in very heavily polluted and impacted communities. And one of the best programs that I know of is called the Enhanced Fleet Modernization Plus-Up Program. And in addition to when you scrap your old car, if you will buy a, a used plug-in car and you are you fit the criteria, you're low-income, you're living in a disadvantaged community like pretty much the whole of San Joaquin Valley, then you can get up to $12,000 um, on the hood of a used plug-in vehicle. And for example, a used Leaf now is going for around fourteen, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000. So you can get a practically new Leaf for two dollars to $3,000. So there's a lot going on to help these vehicles get into low-income and disadvantaged communities in this state. And all of those programs are really, really wonderful. But I'll say the most important way to get those vehicles out there as fast as possible is to get them into that used market. And, and that means selling a lot of new cars. So we need everything. Next question. Welcome to Climate One. Oh, hi, uh, Gerald Harris. Uh, Amory Levin once mentioned that about 6% of the energy in gasoline actually gets to running, turning the wheels. Uh, isn't it possible that ultra-low emission vehicles and more high-efficiency gasoline vehicles could accomplish very much the same thing? If you had a 200-mile uh, internal combustion engine with very low emissions, couldn't you do a lot of what you're talking about? Charlie Vogelheim Ford yeah. has kind of gone down this road trying to sort of turbocharge the internal combustion engine rather than go electric and hybrid. So Yeah, there's been some remarkable advancement. And, and I'm not going to uh, pick the numbers because I don't have them in front of me. But your point is well taken in that the internal combustion engine is inherently inefficient in terms of all of the friction that occurs every step of the way, from the pistons through the drivetrain through the transmission to the, to the, to the wheels. So... Part of the problem about that is, and again, the, the advantages to electric is you can put the electric motors right at the wheels and you lose everything in between. Uh, so it has been amazing in terms of the advancements of internal combustion capabilities over the last couple of years. You're talking about EcoBoost is what Ford calls it, SkyTrack is what Mazda calls it. They're doing remarkable things. The four-cylinder engine on the Mustang right now has over 300 horsepower the best V8 you could buy in the original Mustang didn't have that much horsepower. So it, it is remarkable, but it's still an internal combustion engine. In the end, it's still burning a fossil fuel, and if it's about the tailpipe emissions, then it's still not achieving what we have. The good news is it's just using less fuel along the way. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. Hi, John Tripp. Um, I am a clean energy consultant, and I used to run EV development programs for CalStart. And one question I have 
when you're talking about people buying electric cars who are not homeowners, uh, there is obviously the very real problem of people charging at home. I mean, here in San Francisco, the average apartment doesn't have a parking space. So any comment on that from the, anyone on the panel? I mean, so that's a real issue. Yeah. So I think that's an issue that where, the, where there needs to be investment in infrastructure, charging infrastructure in multi-unit dwellings and at workplaces. And the way the state is addressing that is um, the Public Utilities Commission just approved applications from the investor-owned utilities. And the investor-owned utilities have made a commitment to work with multi-unit dwellings to put in charging in the multi-unit dwelling and work with workplaces to get workplace charging in. Because if you have the option to charge at work, then you don't necessarily need home charging. I think that is a huge issue, though, and one that's going to require public funding, either through the utility or through um, our, our California Energy Commission has a program that's focused on putting chargers in these more difficult places to reach, and multi-unit dwellings are definitely one of them. But once you have the charging infrastructure in the multi-unit dwelling and in the workplace, then the problem really is resolved. So it's not that difficult. It's just more costly. And who's going to make the investment? It's probably going to have to be a public investment. If I can just add, again, depending on the vehicle and the amount of charge that you need to take, it doesn't have to be uh, you know, an, a, a complicated system. Exactly. It can just be an outlet for that matter. Yeah, um, I was, I was in Paris Rocher. a few years ago. And in Paris, they have gas pumps at the curbside. You know, you pull off the street, it's right there. They have electrical outlets. I saw cars charging right at the curbside. If you think about it, every street light is right by the curb. So this is not like the technology is impossible. It just makes more sense to more rapidly roll out cars to people who have a garage to plug it in first. They're the natural first adopters. Um, but with workplace charging and multi-unit uh, dwelling charging and other innovative things like putting it at curbside, we'll get there. There's an EV advocate who lives in Palo Alto in a zero-energy home who I think put a, Sven Tessen put a, a charger out on a curb and tried to like make it free electricity like uh, <laughs> for the neighborhood just as a little bit of a challenge. Let's go to our next question at Climate One. Hi, my name is Noel Chrysostomo, and I work for the Public Utilities Commission on Electric Vehicles. Um, my question relates to a story that was broken by the Huffington Post about um, the Koch brothers organizing against electric vehicles. Um, what are your thoughts uh, from the Cal ETC, Plug in America, and the media in the state's potential role to address these upcoming attacks? Eileen Tut, big oil fighting back. Well, we have anticipated this for a long time, and actually they've been fighting back for a long time, but you're right. Um, what, what Noel said is true. It, at, le- at least the media is reporting that the Koch brothers are going to invest billions in specifically attacking electric vehicles. I thought it was $15 million is what I read. I thought it was so, bi- billions? I think no, it's millions. Millions? Well. Okay. You know, they have very, very deep pockets. So I think th- that is a huge challenge, and, and what what these these um, media folks often do is they organize grassroots to a degree that we can't like I, I, the example I gave earlier where they literally you know bust people in from low income communities and you know the and they opposed regulations that would have brought cleaner transportation to those communities that are most disadvantaged and most suffering from air pollution. So they they are not beholden to truth or honesty or <laughs> ethics. Um, so I am very concerned about that. And I think the way the only way we fight that is for groups like Plug in America for 
um, you know, other organizations that are environmental organizations in the state and for the state itself to run its own marketing campaign and really push back and educate the public properly. Because it, just like what happened when um, when the industries there or I don't know, the campaign against, and I think it was largely the oil industry, the campaign against our climate programs here in California when they were f trying to kill our climate programs, they lost, and they, they tried to run an initiative, and they lost because people heard the truth. And so I think we just have to, we, we, we've got to expect this, we've got to be prepared, and we're going to all have to work together to really make sure that we understand where the message is coming from. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. My name is Roy Buckstein, and I'm an electric car owner. And I know this is um, conversations about electric cars, but on the hydrogen car, it, I, I don't quite understand how that can gain momentum or traction if each hydrogen station, the infrastructure, is going to cost a million-plus dollars, whereas the electric car, we charge it in our home. The infrastructure is already there substantially. Uh, so can you comment about how hydrogen okay. folks think too, that they're going to be able to get uh, attraction? Can we produce it in our home and charge our cars? Sherry Bosher, the, the state has put in some money into hydrogen. Well, as someone wiser than me once said, hydrogen is the fuel of the future and always will be. Um, it's... It's not viable now. It's, uh, let's just take it for many reasons. I mean, if you want to read a good and very brief book called The Hype About Hydrogen by Joseph Rahm, it can give you all the technological reasons why this isn't really viable. Maybe someday it will be. But let's just look at the climate of, of hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. Um, hydrogen comes in two ways. It's, I mean, it's a tightly bound molecule. You have to get it from somewhere. Right now, it almost always comes from reformulating natural gas. Well, if we're going to do that, it means a lot more fracking. Anybody want more fracking? You know, it, it's not a sustainable long-term thing, natural gas. The other way to get it is to apply electricity to water to extract the H and H2O and get the hydrogen. That is such an energy-intensive process. It's so wasteful. I mean, you'd need four times as many solar panels to, to do uh, to run a hydrogen car the same distance as an all-electric car. So... You know, it just doesn't make any sense if you have to use natural gas. It doesn't make sense for the climate. If you're going to use solar power or, or renewable power on water, it's so incredibly inefficient. It just it doesn't make sense. Charlie Vogelheim. Okay, so again, just if you do that, you know, if we just went up to a whiteboard, what do we have a whole bunch of? We got a lot of hydrogen. Is it easy to, well, if, if it's in a liquid form, we can store as much, or it's easy to refill. So that's, that makes it, what's the uh, tailpipe? It's water vapor. Well, let's do it. Well, now that we'll go back to the realities of it, as you were just de deconstructing, it's a very difficult model. We all remember number one on our periodic tables in high school. It's hard to store. It's hard to transport. It, it, it is difficult. It's incredibly flammable. Yes, yeah. to, to, to derive. So, so there may be a there there, but we're not sure we're there yet. It, it, it is an electric, electrification, but again, just storage is... But because the state... I is, think hydrogen is great, by the way. So. Uh, let's, let's, let's <laughs> I was going to say, then. because right, let's, 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 the, the state incentives up. are keeping gotta, it alive. Okay, okay, I'm just going to say, a hydrogen electric vehicle is an electric vehicle, and we need everything on the table to get off oil, to be quite honest. So the, if automakers want to build hydrogen cars, and the state's going to invest some money into it, and I think they should, just like they need to invest money in, in battery electric cars, and people want those, these cars, and they can offer a utility that perhaps a pure battery electric can't. They might be 
might be more applicable in larger vehicles or whatever, whatever they can do. The truth is that right now Toyota is making big investments in hydrogen. And my sense is that if Toyota, which is a very, I, I like the Prius, by the way, if they're trying it, then it's possible. And the other automakers are looking at it too. So I, I really think we ought to give hydrogen a, t- a chance. I, I agree it's probably a lot longer off than, than a battery electric vehicle. And I really like my battery electric vehicles. But I, I, I don't think it should be written off yet. And should I, I taxpayers a, pay a ton of money to build the infrastructure? Absolutely. They should pay the money. We should, we should pay money to get off oil. And if you're some talking of it goes tens and tens of millions same of dollars, for battery electric vehicles, we need no, that money. No, not for, the same. Oh, yes. Way worse. Oh, no. We, uh-uh. need, we need to invest <laughs> in, in every alternative fuel. I, that is a, that zero emission or electric, and that's hydrogen and battery electric. This this play all cards philosophy. That's it's the only not thing. play all cards. That's, the, and that's, that's what the state says. Electric. We have to look at zero. all options, <laughs> all alternatives, and that's what's keeping this alive yeah. because the state incentives give so many more credits for you to produce a handful of hydrogen fuel hydrogen cell vehicles. vehicles aren't just alive. a handful. They're not even barely born yet. So, but the car companies are still <laughs> pursuing them because the state lets them do just a handful and then not have to produce all of the clean electric cars that they should be producing. Yeah. They get away with murder for that. And so it's a big shell game. Now, maybe 30 years from now, but we don't have 30 years, people. We've got five years, maybe 10. And, viab- and hydrogen's just not going to be viable in that time frame. I think we need a program on hydrogen. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. Coming to live here at the end here. Yeah, happy with that. Last question with apologies to the line. But last question. Uh, I showed up a couple years ago with a um, EV, a LEAF, And I went to a colleague and said, look, I've got this nifty climate-friendly vehicle, ecologically-friendly vehicle. He says, no, you don't. He says, you've you've created a big hole in the environment because you won't break even on the environment until you drive it for at least 80,000 miles because of all the manufacturing and mining and all the other industries that go into making that vehicle. Any comments on that? I I did look into it, and it did seem to have a lot of validity. Union of Concerned Scientists did a big report on this, life cycle of cars. It takes a lot of energy to make a car. Who's going to tackle that one? Well, it takes energy to make a car, and then it also takes uh, precious metals to make the batteries. And that's so you get the double-edged sword there. So a lot of it depends on what we can develop in terms of recycling those, reusing those both metals and the batteries, because, again, now it's all out of the ground. It's been developed. So can we continue to use it? And that's what's going to reduce the overall uh, environmental impact on the, the build and, and existence of that vehicle. What happens today? I get that question a lot. What about the batteries? What happens to the batteries afterwards? Are they recycled? Where do they go to die? Where do they go Where, now? Brother, Sherry Bosher? Well, I, I just want to add to that previous question. There have been multiple, multiple studies about what's called well-to-wheels analysis and life cycle analysis of cars by Argonne National Laboratory uh, and Northwestern National Labs and electric and plug-in vehicles are cleaner than gas vehicles. When you look at all those things, the mining, the construction, et cetera. Um, but I think he's asking, was it better to run a, ga- a 10-year-old gasoline car than, than buy a new one that's electric? That's a different question. That's a different question. Yeah. That's a different question, yeah. Okay. Because, but, again, from a, a, an economic standpoint, I, and we need to, uh, to your point, and Cherry's made it several times, it's a, if it's about the tailpipe, we need to focus on that. I mean, you can say, is it better? But, again, what's the end game here to the extent that, I mean, shoot, right now it's cheaper to buy a, an efficient internal combustion engine, but what is the end game? And if it's to reduce or eliminate the tailpipe emissions, the CO2, then we need to look at something. We've come to the end here. We've been talking about electric cars with Charlie Vogelheim, host of the Motor Trend Audio Weekly Podcast, Eileen Tut from the Electric Transportation 
uh, Coalition, and Sherry Boschert, who's a co-founder of Plugin America and an author. I'm Greg Dalton. You can join the conversation on Twitter using our handle at Climate One and listen to a podcast of this and other Climate One programs uh, on iTunes or at our website, climateone.org. I'd like to thank our audience here at the Commonwealth Club and online and on air. Thank you all for joining the discussion. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer. Kelly Pennington is our director of audience engagement. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. The Commonwealth Club's CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.